This is Hacker Public Radio, episode 3804 for Thursday, the 2nd of March, 2023. Today's show is entitled 2022-2023 New Year's Show Episode 2. It is part of the series HPR New Year Show. It is hosted by HPR volunteers and is about 87 minutes long. It carries an explicit flag. The summary is 2022-2023 New Year's show where people come together and chat. So what's everybody's big plans for tonight? Say again? What's everybody's big plans for tonight? Firework, pop a <laughs> champagne bottle with somebody? No, sadly not. Um, I'll be <laughs> I'll be on here and I'll be uh, and I'll watch the uh, the I guess I'll watch the London Fireworks display because that's I think that's the first time it's on for three years because it was all banned with all cancelled with COVID, yeah. I don't cancel nothing here. <laughs> I'm a tree hugging hippie from New York, but I've lived in the South since the '90s. But uh, here in Florida, our our governor doesn't think there's COVID, nor should we get vaccinated or wear masks. I do all of everything he tells me to not to do. I do. So I wear masks. I got five vaccinations. You know. Right. Well. Yeah. Um. Right. Well. In that case. Okay. There was a great guy in my lug in that in over here in England. Right. I met him in 2013 once at the pub, the old pub we used to go to, because he was visiting us back from America with his wife and his two daughters, who were like 11 and whatever at the time, I think. And um, then he went back to Florida because he moved in with his American wife, yeah. And, and in the pandemic, we started having these virtual on-jitsy lug meetings. And, and there's a mailing list, obviously, but he, he came in from Florida and it was really nice. Um, and it was like, oh, great. He's, he's on and we could talk, he'd be there early and he, he stayed late and all those guys, you knew all kinds of things you could learn from about all sorts of things, tech wise and so on. Really, really nice guy. See him there with the fans going in Florida and his noisy cat and everything. Talk to his wife occasionally because of how the house was done. But then he disappeared last summer, or not last summer, the summer before it must have been actually. And my friend and me, from the lug, good friend of mine, 10 years now, were thinking, like, where, where's he gone? Why is he not on the, the meeting? That's odd. He just busy, it's the summer. But then it got to October, and his, and his wife sent us a message via the lug contacts. Got it. She couldn't get into his computer, he was doing some really good tech job. You know, his wife is locked out of his computer. <laughs> um... And it turns out that, yes, he had died on my birthday as well, it sounds like, 31st July, of uh, the COVID Delta variant in Florida. And and I thought, and he's only 47 years old as well, so yeah, there you go. He did want normality, he wanted to go to his hack space and things, but it was just it's just so sad, and he's left two daughters behind as well, so it's just it's just horrible. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, I've lost. I like to say I lost two good friends. I lost uh, my mom, my uncle. I mean, and most of the people I hang out with here just don't mask. They don't care. You know, I don't. I I gave up kind of caring about what they care about. <laughs> so I don't mask while I'm having coffee around them because at least I'm vaccinated. <laughs> I wear masks in other public places, but still. Yeah, no, I've had five. I didn't want the AstraZeneca one. Because of some stealth cell research thing, or I don't know, or something on the Oxford site. But I've done the Pfizer, I've had five Pfizer's, so. But, but and now, and now the Chinese borders are open as well to, uh, letting people go there and also go out. And I was reading that they're gonna, at least in the UK, say soon enough that 
if you're coming in from China, you have to be have a negative test for COVID. I think America is doing the same policy in Italy or somewhere as well. Yeah, we're doing that here too. I've I've noticed that. But yeah, I just happen to live in one of those you know states. Ninety percent of the people seem to not care. So. I think Florida. Yeah, I got that impression as well that Florida was more like our, our cinemas were closed in the lockdown, and Florida was like, no, yeah, you can go and watch cinema. Might have to wear a face mask, but no problem. Yeah, yeah. We, had, I mean, when it eased down, we had the face mask thing as well. But it was like, it was like you, you can go to cinema. We're in a big lockdown over here. Well, the mayor well, here is not too bad, and uh, uh, for the longest time, all the buses required you to wear a mask and the uptown trains and stuff. But they slowly but surely did away with that because they start losing funding. The governor says, "Well, if you if you mask and you do this stuff, I'm not giving you money." So. Well. Well, uh, interesting. Uh, one of my good friends is, is a nurse of probably 50 years experience, maybe more. And she said the masking stuff is of limited utility. And again, these uh, vaccinations also have been, they're not, not as, they adapted the regulations to let vaccinations, which are less than 100% effective, go through as vaccines. So COVID vaccines are not like the vaccines for flu or other things that were used to traditionally. They they have jiggered the definition. I think, I mean, I heard something like that, that yes, the, the vaccines were possibly a little bit experimental, really. But but on the other hand, um, I assume that they have, must, well, I mean, you can still catch it annoyingly even though you've had this vaccine. But I, I assume they've also helped... Uh, People not become as unwell with COVID when they when they quit, so and which is the point as well. Yeah, I pretty much well, only wear masks because I don't want to get other people sick, and I may be getting sick. I volunteer in shelters and stuff too, so who knows what I might have. Also, uh, there has been some questions about some of the vaccines and uh, cardiac problems. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. So there was a story about. How if you take the Pfizer jab and you're male, and and I think there's a story with actually U.S. soldiers or something at first, and they took the 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 jab and they ended up getting the heart inflamed slightly or something, and then and then I remember. But what was interesting though is when I got one of those jabs for my third time, I think it was, I said to the the, the well, it was a male nurse actually, and he sort of said, "Oh yeah, yeah, but if you get that, it'll be temporary, it'll go." And then also the next time I went and did one. They told me just straight away, like, yes, you might have this heart thing, but it's very rare and it will disappear and it's nothing to worry about. Um, so, I don't know, I've had five of them, I'm still here. I'm just, yeah, I've had for the Modernas, so... I've had five Pfizer's, yeah. Well, just a lot of... The real pr- problem that you had was even Dr. Fauci, the head of all COVIDian knowledge, has admitted that that he he's told the public what he believes that they can accept. So he he was saying early on that we'll be back to normal quickly. You don't need this. You don't need that. You whatever. And then he was into everybody's got a lockdown, and and it turned out that that a lot of that stuff was not true. Matt uh, Matt Miner, did you get vaccinated? I've gotten. Vaccinated and uh, one or two boosters. I haven't looked at my car.
Ah, so you have had some, at least one or two Pfizer, of these COVID vaccines then. Right. But the problem you have is that the COVID vaccine is, well, it was, uh, COVID is the first time that your choice of vaccination uh, has has had a serious uh, enforcement issue. Well, well, it was, well, fake the, as, as annoying as those lockdowns were, in a way, they had to sort of do do it because, especially, in, I'm going to take I'm going to take England as a good example here because I'm in England, right? And England is a place where a lot of people. First of all, the pub going to a pub, going out to a pub, is very much ingrained into society. You go out and have a drink with people sometimes, or ideally, that's what people do for fun. And then there's nightclubs a bit as well, more for the younger ones, but you know, and. And people really like to do that. They want to go out to restaurants. They want to go to pubs. They want to have food and drinks, and they want to have fun. They want and then there's cinemas and things. That's a bit different. And and um, they actually and they, I mean I mean they did do it. They did make it. Up. And Boris Johnson, who was the prime minister at the time, just before they went went to lockdown properly, he basically said they basically said, look, you you can go to a pub at the moment. However. You're not really supposed to, but ideally, or, or try not, or don't, or try not to go because there's this COVID thing going around, and and the other things were open too, and that's sort of a mixed message. So certain people were like, "Hey, I'm going to the pub anyway. I don't, I don't care." Others were like, "Oh, maybe I should stay at home," and they had to enforce it with a lockdown, really, because otherwise, I mean, people were breaking lockdown anyway. They had a lot. Certain people had people friends over and things for other households that, again, that was a big no-no, but people were doing it. Or maybe had a girlfriend or something in a different household and go, oh, we're going to see them. Or, you know, people find their own way to, to break it and justify it. So they t- closed all the fun stuff down. Bye-bye pubs, bye-bye cinema, bye-bye restaurant. And this annoyed me as well because I'm in a place where, by, just outside a real city, um, I mean, it's quite built up around here. There's, there's a busy road, but um, but I have good pubs and things down there, and I've got things around here. And and then what they did as well here in the England is they later on is they tried a tier system where it would be done on the county that that a place is in. So because it's the city was in a different county technically, um, always to be the same place back in the 1990s that I'm talking about now. Um, they ended up in tier two, where it's more relaxed. We ended up in tier three, where our pubs had to be closed. They could have their pubs open. And then also with the up, up northern England, they put them in tier four, where basically Christmas was pretty much cancelled as well. <laughs> and of course, those people complained and said, "Hey, London, you, you've got the people the government in London. Why don't you put? Well, you won't do it to London, will you?" Maybe to make a point, or because the cases were high, or a bit of both, they did then stick London and surrounding areas of London to tier four as well. Um, so they had the most, which was basically tier four was lockdown, basically. Um, but but they had to close some of this, or people would just be out as normal doing things. But it was like you you cannot go across the other tier zone unless it's essential for work or, or medical reason. And then in Scotland, it was even more more lockdown. 
because the UK is split into four countries, really. Scotland was even more locked down. They had the more stricter rules. Um, Wales had quite strict rules as well. And Northern Ireland, I think, reasonably strict rules. And England was actually the most relaxed out of the lot. <laughs> but we still have, but it's like a fourth to close things down. Otherwise, people will be out socialising as normal. And I think in India, uh, India? No, no, apparently in the Caribbean, they banned alcohol as well. That's what somebody told me when it was locked down. It wasn't, they banned the social drink. They banned alcohol as well whilst there was a lockdown. And in India, it was like, why are you out here? Why are you out here? Get, go home. You're breaking lockdown. Um, that's what I heard as well. Well, what, one of the things that I saw in New York City, you couldn't go into the bars, restaurants, what have you, but they built these little shacks and bubbles and whatnot out on the sidewalk, and people were served outdoors in these temporary buildings or fixtures or what have you. Oh, yeah, 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 we had similar, um, when, it, when it eased down a bit, because, I mean, the pubs had to be closed, and they were really fussing, we lost, they lost a lot of money, etc., but when it eased down a bit, the pubs were like, it was like, it was like, okay, you can go to a pub, however, you're not allowed to sit inside, so, uh, so if you wanted to, like, buy a beer, and, and you had to go inside, or you wanted to go and use the top. Well, it was that as well. Even the toilet was like, you can go to the toilet, but only one person's supposed to be in there at once. But on top of that, I had to go around with a face mask inside. So it was like, it was like really? And then and then, and then, then you were allowed to sit outside, and they made some temporary um, outside sitting places with in the car park and um, and things like that as well. And some where it's going now, and some where it's just stayed probably, really. But... Um, but it was the, the, the whole mass, but then, but then when, but then when they opened up inside, it was like, you can sit inside, however, when you move up, but, but even then, when, you, I did use the hand sanitizer when you come in too, but if you need to move around, buy a beer or go to the toilet, you have to put a face mask on. But then when you come and sit back down at your table, you can take your face back, mask off, no problem. Well, I'm just saying that the regulation in a lot of places had um, a lot of holes in them, and if they were following the silence, well, I saw a school band was playing, but those with wind instruments had holes in their masks so that they could blow through the wind. There comes a point where, where oh, and uh, oh, they banned like church. I mean, you, yeah, yeah, even churches had to close here for a bit, uh, and. Uh, and then the thing about like, and then choirs were like a total no no. It was like, oh no, if you if you go and sing in a choir, you're gonna possibly spread COVID. So <laughs> no choirs allowed and all that as well. And obviously they became like Zoom choirs and they try music online. It didn't work so well, but but um, it was like it was like really now the churches are closing as well. Not you can't go to church. <laughs> well, greetings again to Australia and Melbourne, Sydney, etc. Made it interesting as well when, of course, the politicians themselves uh, broke the rules or bent the rules. Yeah, we had we had uh, there was somebody health minister in Scotland who didn't who did something and have to resign slightly, and then in England we had the whole uh, uh, party thing, and the other guy the guy went somewhere and so on. I don't know about America, but I assume there was stuff going on over there as well. 
Oh yeah, there was there was a lot of uh, liberal parties and liberal uh, fundraisers and whatnot. Nobody masked up for those, and the general consensus about the rules in America were that the people who wrote the rules were fine with the rules as long as they didn't have to obey them. That's <laughs> what they said here as well when things started to happen, yeah. Just like that. Well, they, they may make the rules, but they can break the rules, and we're supposed to follow the rules, but they can go and bend and break the rules. <laughs> well, a shout-out to Morton C. there. Are you around? I've seen that one density come in and out, but not living there here. Well, I think he was driving part of the time, so he can't really manipulate the system. Speaking of making the rules, uh, I'm going to suggest next year that they at least put Eastern Time equivalents on the uh, on the time zone, so that uh, a poor American can can have some fighting chance of actually getting the times right. Um, to be yeah, no, to be fair, I I can agree. <laughs> I'm not an American, though. I, I, but I do kind of agree with you because the amount of Americans that are on this, that come on this HPR. It just, it just, it just, and even the Canadians, you know, well, not as many of those, I don't think, but you know, yeah, it would make sense. Well, the thing about it is, we were talking about how the rules are enforced. Did, oh, did we just squeak somebody in? 107. Some country just went into the New Year, yeah. Australia's gotten greeted a couple of times. Happy New Year, Australia. Uh, Australia's in like full time zone, I think, as well, but like America. Right, yes, but I'm just, say, I'm just saying we've. Um, I know, and I was trying to follow the notes, but it's it's very hard to follow the notes when you have no translation to your local time. Well, your time plus five hours, isn't it? And then you got UTC, but then you have to work out the other time zone. <laughs> right. I mean, give us time that's useful, or maybe I should just give up on doing the usual greeting thing and just no, no, no carry on. I mean, you might get wrong. Somewhere, but so be it. I think it's good to have greetings. Yeah, well, I'd been looking forward to this all year, and uh, this is painful. The show, we'll also do the greetings. I've been looking forward to the show, I and I was going to try to do my best on the greetings, but without proper support, it's very hard. Yeah, I, I, I was looking forward to the show as well. I mean, it's still a bit early, though, I, I, and I assume there'll be a load more people on here later. Yeah, COVID was... <laughs> 2023 is going to be like the first normal year in certain ways after 2019. Like, like I was saying earlier, conferences are on and things, hi-fi shows and yeah. Well, the the interesting... The thing that's most interesting to me is that even discussing whether COVID and stuff in, in America, discussing whether COVID... Uh, measures were effective or whatnot. There are a lot of, like YouTube, you can't discuss it. I'm doing it here as well. I think there's like in like a was it investigation or whatever, you know, looking into COVID and if they did the right thing or not, and um, if it's effective and, and all that kind of stuff. Well, but, also we we found out that the narrative we were getting from our government people was adjusted. The science, well, um, an interesting datum that I found, uh, can't really source it, but a lot of the uh, CDC people were, were getting 
residuals from, from their work on COVID. They're getting what? They were getting residuals from their work on the COVID vaccine problem. Well, you mean money? Or... I mean money. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Same here. They, uh, some of them actually got money just from <laughs> doing their stuff and quite a bit of money. Then we had a former health if they were If they weren't getting paid to tell you to by the vaccine companies, would they have pushed a semi-tested vaccine quite so hard? I don't know, but we had a former health secretary here who uh, did it, who who uh, who something went wrong slightly, and then he had to kind of like well, he said as an MP, but he quit as health secretary, and then he'd be on a game, on a I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, a game show uh, thing. Um, well, a, a few stunts kind of, and trying to apparently redeem himself a little bit as well. But 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 they they also had well people asked them questions then as well. But yeah, that was difficult when when people couldn't visit care homes or it was like, nope, sorry, your you, your your grandma's dying or or your whatever, but you can't go visit there because it's COVID and or or or, or later on you can with face masks maybe, but it, 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 that's what got a lot of people when when they were told they can't even visit their dying you know family or whatever and and. Uh, Yet the MPs go and break the rules slightly, and that's the stuff that really got people. Well, in New York State, the governor had them put known COVID patients into the nursing home. Yeah. Yes, uh, we this the older people are at high risk. Well, let's make certain that they're exposed. They also get a high exposure. If the average guy made that kind of suggestion. He would be considered um, criminal. I think we had something similar here, or uh, or, or something be quite. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to an interesting 2023. Yeah, uh, so, yeah. So my with with like I was saying with conferences back on hi-fi shows and things, events. You know, <laughs> it's going to be the year that it's going to be like 20, it's going to be more similar to 2019. I, I think. Um, with some with some changes here and there, but you know it's not exactly the yeah thing. But well, what's going to be interesting with everything that's coming out of Twitter? We're going to find out if our government actually works. Are you? How? What? We're going to find out if our government actually works. How? How we? How we get stuff on Twitter? Well, there's a lot. A lot of Twitter files are saying that the government. Justice Department and whatnot was manipulating the 2020 election, and anyone is also was suppressing conservative views on Twitter. And that's fact, the American government, hey? Well, I <laughs> apparently with the British government, the uh, Russians had had influenced it a bit or something with elections. Well, we're not on many platforms were not allowed to question whether there was some interference, even though there seems to be evidence. Yeah, and, uh, and apparently the European Commission took some money or something happened with um, Qatar, so that's a little bit corrupt as well. <laughs> so I mean, that's why I've been in the articles recently on, online, on the Daily Mail and whatever news websites. Oh yeah, some of those European commission regulations that would have required people to get a license for every cross-posting on the internet. 
I think no, no, yeah, they're all, they're probably all all the governments probably at least a little bit corrupt or whatever. But I guess that's how it is. Yeah, I have a I have a book that was a it was an int I have a book about the internet that was very interesting. This guy in America helped convert a lot of uh, organization for international standards uh, documents into PDF form. And in turn, they allowed him to uh, put this information up on a server in America for international access. Yeah. But what was interesting is that if you wanted to get these UN documents from the source in Geneva, you had to pay an arm and leg up to the knee because the, the documents were funding were a slush fund for ISO. Also, because of the high prices, every year they would print a ton of these standards documents and they would sell very few of them. But the fact that they were being printed by, by the UN meant that the printers were making out quite a bit, even if nobody was buying the documents. Right, so I'm just, I'll tell you now, my battery is getting low on here. I'm on 9%, apparently, and then and on this big laptop, I'll get to about 5% or something. I'll go, yeah, we're going to hibernate, this is plug me in, but I'm going, I'm going to let it die, and then I'll do have a break and whatever, and then I'll come back on here later. So I reckon I've got around maybe 5, 10 minutes left before that. So, yeah, when it kicks me out later, that's why. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you and having somebody to talk with. Uh, I may <laughs> take a break here. Well, I said, I said about five, ten minutes, I think, I've got yet, so that's fine. But they'll uh, pretty much kill my... It'll pretty much just turn itself off with it's fine. And then I can try recharge it and things as well. A bit of it. Can pay the recording still, or... Yeah. Maybe he's just too busy with his kids or something. He's not even. He's not even there. <laughs> oh, they'll keep recording. I'm, I'm just... No, I know, but Kevin Fallon isn't even here, really. I, I expect this will be get quite busy in the next maybe the next three four hours or something. Well, or I hope so. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to this all for ages as well. Oh, well, for a while, yeah. Well, I've got about seven minutes to my next greetings of. I think around then I'm gonna probably get kicked off as in my battery will die and that's and that's that, but that's fine. Yeah, well I'm I'm gonna do the next greeting and then that's about uh then I'm gonna to have to take a break. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty critical though, yeah, it's about to happen. Ooh. Yeah, it's just grabbed my food and, and I'm here for the next little while. Speaking of food. Well, that just means you're under proper feline supervision. And I need to make. Thank you. This this finger in the dike job is is not what it's cut out to be. Happy New Year to small region of Aus Australia, Adelaide, Broken Hill. Hello, Geo. Hey, what's going? On? Uh, time. I'm just having a bite to eat. Ah, okay. Yeah, we had one here for about 20 years. It was our first cat combined in the house because uh, in in the suburbs here we have a coyote problem yeah mine's it was my my wife's cat she passed so i just well i'm sorry for your loss 
Yeah, it's been <laughs> used to living alone, doing what. Yeah, I, uh, one of the things, our old Google Plus. What remains? Yeah, I'm an older gentleman. Uh, my brother's a long haul trucker who doesn't come east of Pennsylvania. I got you. I'll probably be. Got sick and tired of being a third date. You know, George, it would help if you didn't keep putting teddy bears in people's beds. That's creeping them out. Now, 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 now. This is a spore. Snuck right in here. I do that. I gotta make more comments, probably. Incriminate you. Oh, welcome, Sporev, to our lonely outpost of ether. Nice to to meet you all. I just came in here because I saw George pimping it out on our Telegram group. May I ask uh, what your tech interests might be? Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm a technical writer. That's my my day job. Uh, I'm also a software maintainer for a Fediverse project called Funkwell. Um, I am a sort of Linux enthusiast, FreeBSD uh, enthusiast, ex-FreeBSD port maintainer. Stopped doing that because I hate packaging software. Hate it, hate it, hate it. Um, <laughs> so, and before that, I was a Windows system administrator in a college. Um, so kind of all over the place, really. Funkwell sounds familiar. What is your product? Um, so Funkwell is a federated uh, music streaming platform. Um, basically, it's a tool you can use. You can upload your music to it to stream on different devices, but you can also publish your music in things called channels, which you know allows you to share it like a Mastodon uh, feed or a, or a PixelFed feed. Um, and it uses ActivityPub to interact with the sort of wider federated web. Yeah, I, um, so that's where I heard it. I'm, I'm just one of the uh, members of the Linux Lugcast cast. Ah. Since how long have you been? Uh, how long have you been doing that? Uh, for a few years now, I was with some of the other Dev Random and some of the others back in the day that have podcasted and the survivors have have set up the Linux Lugcast. And uh, my interactions with Unix started back in the 80s. I had an account on a machine that the, at MIT that, that the students had scraped together and uh, was on an early version of Ethernet called Chaos Deck, which, by the way, has been recreated for emulated systems now. Hmm. Yes, I'm, I have some interest in, in the older systems. Yeah. That stuff is fascinating, to be honest. Especially to see like where it all started and how we took it from there, really. Well, if you want some truly interesting reading, uh, Anne and Lynn Wheeler have a site called garlic.com, I think, uh, have a lot of posts about IBM from the early days, 360, 370 days on up. Hmm. Did you say garlic.com? Yes. They have a lot of posting, and one of the things that's fascinating is that uh, IBM's worldwide network was not built by IBM uh, management. Hmm. It was built by system administrators hooking systems together, like the old UUCP, because they needed communications, and it became a company network because the technicians who knew how to hook it hook things together did the hookups and then later on management was able to use it as as a business tool Mm. 
Also, a lot of it was running on the most despised operating system that IBM produced, which is VM370. That was despised by IBM internally. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, why? Because it was an MVS. Ah, makes sense. <laughs> it's not however, the thing I like. However, MVS could not do anything except be a note, end node. They couldn't handle the work that VM was doing, including supporting MVS. That's what that's what kept VM three seventy alive was the fact that it was used to largely to support MVS. Mm. The IBM's uh, Bitnet network was also bigger than the internet for for many years because oh. of IBM's worldwide reach. Yeah, market dominance. Yeah. Well, not so much market. Well, yes, but just IBM had more offices than U.S. had embassies, so, you know, <laughs> something had to hook them up. Also, they had about cornered the market on uh, data line encryption systems, mm. because, of course, IBM wanted to secure its data go going across country boundaries and what. Yeah. Yep. I just uh, managed to find, because I went to garlic.com, and it's a, it's a very bizarre site. Like, it's obviously for some some uh, sort of company. You have to actually go to garlic.com slash tilled lin to actually get to the, the, the interesting posts. But they don't, they don't link it anywhere on the main site. It's weird. Well, it is a resource for a certain group of people, just, mm. just like the alt-computer uh, folklore Usenet. Yes. I, I was actually... Uh, I've been reading um, folklore.org, um, which is all about the original, like you know, the early days of Apple and the sort of making of the original Lisa and Macintosh. Um, somebody's <clears throat> put the entire site up on uh, Gemini, and they've done a mirror of it, and they formatted it for Gemini. So I've been idling away reading a, reading that in my spare time just to kind of read up on it because it's yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Like just looking at looking at these people talking about all the stuff they had to do to try and squeeze an entire system onto such a small set of resources and <laughs> how they had to steal so much um, so much resource from other things. That sort of thing always fascinated me. I remember watching a, um, it was like a short documentary about the making of Crash Bandicoot on the PlayStation 1, the original PlayStation 1, and uh, about how when creating that, they had to, the, the developers, wanted crash to himself to have quite a large polygon count even though the rest of the game had quite limited polygons and to do that they had to find more memory because obviously the system memory was very limited so the developers went around looking at all of the different places in the system that had memory and then started taking the memory allocation away from different parts of the system to see if it broke it and if it didn't break it, they added it to the Crash Bandicoot model as a memory resource. <laughs> so they just like they just stole a bunch of system memory that was supposed to be allocated elsewhere, and they didn't really know what the uh, actual repercussions of that would be because Sony never really documented it. But uh, it worked, you know, the game played. So yeah, well, so much of uh, the uh, the Ann and Lynn Wheeler story. Mm is he started out uh, in the early days of, of the first virtual memory 360s. 
Yeah. And in fact, um, the uh, the application environment used by VM three seventy, uh, where every user had basically had its own little VM machine or mm. or its own little desktop slice of the machine. It originally started out running on the the three sixty hardware, mm. and only later did they make it so that it would only run on a virtualized. You would have to have a, an underlying hypervisor. Yeah. Also, one of the early uses of uh, VM three seventy was to cover up the appalling memory problems that MVT and uh, the early uh, massive three three uh, three sixty and three seventy operating traditional operating systems had for memory leaks and whatnot. Mm. With a VM system, they could cover up a lot of holes that would show through if you were running it strictly on uh, on bare on the resources of the actual hard. So so VM three seventy was to cover the memory leaks and the memory inefficiency of IBM's other operating system. Uh, it, it's so it's so interesting to me because uh, you know working in web development, you don't really think all that much about uh, resources. Like computers are, you know, so powerful nowadays, and you know, with the web, it's like it's not even a real consideration. And it should be. I mean, it should be. This is not. You know, this is not me saying this is the right thing or anything, but you do just sort of end up, um, you do just end up like creating ungodly large apps because, hey, we didn't need to worry about, you know, memory allocation. The browser takes care of all that for us. Um, and I, yeah, it's no wonder computers are in the state they're in today. <laughs> oh, I came back. I come from CPM and DOS and stuff like that. Mm. I was beating DOS around the head and shoulders to to run applications that really shouldn't, uh, mm. especially like Free Pascal, which was a which is the core of the Lazarus project, which basically is open source Delphi. Mm. But I was running that on a DOS machine using a long file name driver and and all kinds of uh, beating the heck out of a little three set. <laughs> three eighty six. Yeah. Yeah, I I've looked at Gemini but I've had so many other things to deal with and, and I haven't been able to explore the Gemini capsule unit. Yeah, it's um it it kind of exploded onto the scene a few years ago, didn't it? Um and it was it was I actually made a post uh, on on Mastodon because we had the recent boom of Twitter users coming to the Fediverse. And one of the big problems I saw was that uh, you had a lot of people who were Fediverse you know, users and had been for a long time, basically posting a lot about you know how great the Fediverse is. And that was all they posted about. Like new people were coming in from Twitter and th these people were just telling them, no, the Fediverse is great, which it's fine, but this was the problem we had with Gemini, was that Gemini was a really interesting, cool little project. It was very, very easy to set up and get working with and all that. And 
you know, it fulfills a niche. Like it's great on this rubbish old ThinkPad I've got here because I just use a, a nice text browser and everything works perfectly because it doesn't have JavaScript or anything like that messing with it. The problem was, and the reason I left Gemini initially was every single like gem blog I could find, every single capsule was just people posting about how great Gemini is. And, and that just becomes very boring after a while. So I came back to it a few years later, like when this Twitter boom happened, um, because I, I, it, because I was reminded of it and I went back to it and it does look like things have started to get a little bit more settled and interesting there now. Like there are some really cool projects that actually use, um, Gemini's advantages and strengths, uh, specifically with things like tofu TLS certificates. So there's a, a microblogging site on there called Station, which is like a essentially a mastodon for Gemini. Um, there's a really cool thing called Astrobotany, which allows you to raise a plant by, you know, basically going in, watering it every day, giving it fertilizer, stuff like that. It, it's got some cool little projects on it. There are some decent blogs, some nice web apps that do some some interesting uh, web apps, some nice like applets that do some interesting stuff. But um, yeah, I was just initially put off of it because the entire thing was just a big sort of hooray for Gemini. Aren't we the best thing ever? And I was like, this gets very boring after a while. Every single Gemlog I've read has just been about how Gemini is better than Gopher and the web. So <laughs> I, I was worried for a little bit that Mastodon was turning into that. You know, I was worried that it was uh, it was going to become another another thing where a bunch of people joined Mastodon coming from Twitter and they saw that Mastodon was just a bunch of people talking about how Mastodon was great. But uh, thankfully, it's very quickly, you know, found its stride. By the way, do you know what killed Gopher? Uh, I didn't know Gopher was dead. <laughs> is it is it dead? I mean, I, I still, still some use it sometimes. There. Firefox yeah. still does. No, Gopher... Hey, none of that. If you've got something to say, speak up. We're 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 we got two ears, one mouth. There's a reason for that bias. But Gopher was basically what the World Wide Web was before the World Wide Web, and it came out of uh, University of Minnesota. They were using it for their uh, basically to organize, documenting their their campus and various activities. Hmm. But some bright spark said, wait a minute, we've written all this software, we should start charging for it. Mm. And as soon as they they attached the catch register, <laughs> there was this thing that was coming out of CERN called the World Wide Web, or, or at least a web server. And there were standards coming out of CERN, and nobody was charging for nothing. And you could do all these fancy tricks with images and whatnot, or... Or whatever, or at least you could do it say as much as you could under Gopher, and maybe more. And setting up a server didn't cost you two cents. Mm -hmm. So people dropped Gopher like a hot rock, and the World Wide Web took over. Yes, and look where that got us. <laughs> Actually, Gopher is not dead, but um, the fully legal use of it is significant questionable. The only problem is that the university probably has better things to do these days than to try to enforce a license on their yeah. now, now ancient software. Yeah. I mean, I've used Gopher a little tiny bit, and 
it just <clears throat> while I understand that in theory it's lighter and simpler even than than Gemini, uh, I just don't like the way it's sort of set up and laid out. It feels very like um, it, it feels very like a sort of analog to something like Plan Nine because it was a completely sort of distributed system in a way that the web never really was and you know just like plan nine that's a cool idea in concept and in theory but in practice it's annoying <laughs> it's just like uh, you know the whole thing seems to be very which um is, sorry which is why we're not running plan nine on, on oh, our desktop there are so many reasons we're not running plan nine on our desktops um but yeah i mean I think I think like with with Gopher and with Plan Nine, what's nice is somebody went and did that. They made it, and some really good stuff came from it. And we've been able to take that and put it into other systems. You know, things like UTF-8 came from Plan Nine, and you know, some of the distributed computing ideas have have basically become the cloud. You know, the cloud is now a replacement for that. Uh, so you know, it wasn't a complete waste. But um, and I'm sure we got some ideas from Gopher that we've implemented elsewhere. Something like Gemini just feels like a, I don't know, I, I, I like Gemini in theory, and I quite like it as a, as a sort of an alternative for purely text-driven things. But um, yeah, I'm not exactly sure about its sort of use in the future. Yeah, it's, it's very odd. Um, but I'm always excited to try these things, and I maintain uh, act- it. Actually... Um, I don't know the Gemini universe, but uh, I do writing for my private um, enjoyment. Mm. And something like Gemini might be a, a good fit for a mostly for I write in plain text, and I mean plain ASCII. Mm-hmm. And something like Gemini might be great for that, or for some of the documentations. Again, I don't know Gemini, so I can't really say. But it sounds like it could could be a great option for pure documentation and as you say text text based work where yeah. you don't where you don't worry about whether you're going to put a a, uh, a lot of images into it or a lot of you don't need uh, a moving icon or or any of the fancy stuff that the web has been built around lately yeah, for me actually, the the thing that Gemini excels at is is accessibility, and the reason it excels there is because of separation of concerns. And you're saying about like images and stuff like that. Gemini can handle images, so you can put an image on your web server and uh, on your on your server, and basically make a link to that image in Gemini. And basically, using mind type detection. Um, a client such as uh, you know Amphora or Lagrange can determine oh that is an image and the client then decides how it wants to handle that whether it wants you to basically download it as a file to view or if it wants to display it in line but that's for the client to decide the server has nothing to do with it um, and I you know that that's quite nice and this also extends to text the Gem Gemini text. Um, uh, standard is exceedingly simple. It's very similar to Markdown, but it's basically the only. So each block of text, each paragraph, each line, the three characters preceding the line determine what that line is, which means you can have header one, header two, header three, 
uh, block quote, code block, uh, link, and bullet list. And that's pretty much it. That's the only formatting you can do. And again, the client determines how that will be viewed. You can't tell it how that should look. You can't tell a client, I want this text to be blue. I want this text to be whatever. And this from an accessibility point is great because if you are somebody with, say, vision issues, you can set your client up to always show block quotes, you know, white text on a black background in this size font or whatever. And every single Gemini site you go to will do that because the text is so simple. And I actually think that this is something that, you know, the web as a platform could really learn from because overriding styles on websites is stupidly difficult um, <laughs> and you, often and usually leads to breaking things. And if you talk to like web designers, very rarely have they actually considered what happens when their design comes into contact with a uh, an accessibility requirement that is not just they need to be able to use keyboard control or they might need to use a screen reader. You know, it, it's it's from that perspective, I really like how Gemini is set up. That simplicity unlocks a lot of scope for improved, um, you know, for improved sort of you know, accessibility for different people. Just to say, it sounds ideal for, well, one, one organism, uh, as, as I said, it's to be a replacement for the old gopher, which, which was for documenting a university's classes and function, whatever. Hmm. Documenting yeah. it in a way that is accessible to virtually any uh, person with regardless of their percep perception difficulty. I'm saying if you if you could uh, <coughs> also, if you could uh, force people to write it in Gemini first and then put it on the web. Yeah, and, and um, I know, for example, there are several um, Gemini to web proxies. I know one was written by Drew DeVault, who at the time was a big, big supporter of Gemini. And basically, it allows you to write your gem log using Gemini and then pro proxy it through to a front-facing web server. And it converts that into very simple HTML. Because at the end of the day, all of the stuff that the, um, all of the, stuff that the Gemini format is rendering is something that HTML can render very easily. So that, that, that concept is already out there. And I think, for, especially, like you say, for documentation, for bloggers, it's really you know, useful. And I also quite like the idea, again, Gemini is limited, but things like videos and images, you can link to them and then have the client decide how they want to do to deal with that, which means if you prefer your client to render those things in line and actually show them as part of the article, you could choose a client that could do that and then set it to do that. But if you don't and you don't actually want to load images or videos or whatever, they just remain links. And, and for me, that's a much better approach than basically having the site determine for you, uh, this is how these things are going to render. Well, I got to tell you, uh, there's another thing where they completely missed the boat. We're dealing with an aging population mm -hmm. being part of it. I mean, I'm approaching the magic um, Social Security ages. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and... Even when I wasn't, I have one eye that is, I'm nearsighted and I have one eye that is 
that without direction would be legally blind. Mm-hmm. How many of these web websites are built by people with very sharp eyes on very big screens and the first thing I have to do when I go to the site is go up to the to the zoom and and start playing it like a, like a slot machine. Yeah. So I mean everything looks wonderfully beautiful but if you actually just have to uh uh black text on a gray background which is popular with some people yeah and uh you know gemini gemini as a discipline is it is great if nothing else yeah i uh, you know I, I make websites um and i purposefully make them as simple as possible um while not sacrificing too much in the way of sort of nice design so i never use on like normal websites i don't use javascript I, I tend to just use css and html and the idea there is that you know in every case a client should be able to override what you're doing to make it work for users of assistive technology or just people who prefer different you know color schemes and that kind of thing um i also have vision trouble so i sort of i'm sensitive to that kind of thing but gemini like you say it, it just makes it so much simpler because as a sort of a standard like normal writer for example let's say you're just somebody who writes a blog um you can't do anything to affect the way your website looks your gemlog looks you know, the most you can do is is in you know put images put some maybe some ascii art um which again the client can ignore if it wants to if it, if it because it comes in a preformatted block you can say don't show preformatted blocks you know it's it's the the client has so much control there which to me just feels like the logical way around to do it and the other thing is because of the way that um gemini kind of works um with every single action being a single uh request to a server um you get a very very small footprint and also any advanced actions that you want to take has to be written server side so we go back to server side rendering and server side um scripting rather than relying on the client to do all the heavy lifting which is kind of the way the web has gone now it's like you know the server gets away with doing very little and instead the client computer has to get more and more and more powerful to deal with you know all of the stuff that the designer wants it to deal with and i think gemini as a protocol having that very very clear separation of concerns of this is what the client is responsible for which is the rendering of the content and the sending of requests and dealing with certificates and the server is responsible for everything else um it's just a really a very neat and clean clear cut way of doing it which i quite appreciate well that in a lot of ways that's uh that's where wayland comes in too uh the desktops have, have twisted the pure the simple x protocol mm-hmm. into something that makes a pretzel look like a straight edge yeah yeah it's absolutely right it's it's um yeah it's this thing of uh the, the, one of the big things that the pers- uh, solderpunk who is the person who designed the gemini protocol uh one of the things they have they very strongly pushed against right from the beginning was expansion of the spec like the spec should not be expandable in any real way because as they pointed out that was kind of what happened with the web the web just kept expanding new specs kept getting added 
And we've got to the point now where, you know, we have this, um, we have this kind of triopoly of web browsers. You have Chromium based, you have um, WebKit based, and you have Gecko based. And the amount of resource that would be required for somebody to come in and create a brand new, um, you know, a brand new web browser from scratch that can actually handle all of the different sort of uh, specifications of the web would be enormous. It would be like an absolutely enormous undertaking. And, you know, if even Microsoft has backed away from doing it, there's a problem with that. And that just comes from the fact that the web is infinitely expanding in terms of its scope. And the same thing happened with X, as you said, like X started as a very simple sort of protocol to render, you know, graphics across networks and has become this ungodly, complicated, extremely powerful hydra of a protocol. So Gemini has it built in that the spec can't really expand. It just isn't, you know, expandable in any meaningful sense. If you wanted to change something or add something to the specification, it would require so much work and so many different sort of um, sign-offs from people who have been instructed to say no, <laughs> that it just probably would never happen. Um, and it's that kind of beauty and simplicity thing that I quite like about it. And there is an even, I mean, Gopher is technically simpler uh, because it doesn't have to deal with things like TLS certificates. Um, and there's another newer protocol than Gemini, which came out called Spartacus, which is um, very, very, very similar to, to uh, is it Spartan, Spartacus, Spartan, can't remember, but um, very similar to Gemini with the exception that it does not um, require TLS certificates. Everything is just plain text and is just transmitted without encryption of any kind. Whereas Gemini is very strongly um, backed by sort of tofu principle use of TLS certificates. So pick your poison, but I, I personally quite like the idea of using certificates for things. I think that as an authentication mechanism on the few sites that I've used on Gemini, which use authentication, the TLS certificate solution has been very uh, elegant. So, you know. Well, I haven't, I am planning on using the installing or what have you. So my stuff is, is going to be strictly in-house. Hmm. But I do like the idea of of having some capability of putting in certification locally. Uh, but uh, again, I'm going to have to learn how to generate my own certificate since I'm not planning on uh, uh, anchoring things enough to get an official certificate. Yeah, and the way that Gemini you know, works, like I say, it uses TOFU, so trust on first use. You don't need you, a self-signed certificate is considered to be absolutely fine for a Gemini site. You don't need to go to something like Let's Encrypt and have a CA sign off on it. The idea is that the client trusts the certificate, the certificate the first time it connects to the site and then basically checks against that every time it reconnects. So if you change your certificate, then people would see a, a warning saying you've changed it. Um, but in theory, it's just a, a, a sort of authentication mechanism from that perspective, but self-signed is very much the standard on gem logs. Like my gem log just has a self-signed certificate that I made using OpenSSL on the command line, just stuck in a folder somewhere. <laughs> so you know, you don't have to get go through the whole, you know, request a CA request a certificate from a certificate authority and that sort of thing, which is far preferable in my opinion because I 
for something as simple as what Gemini sort of um, is proposing, <clears throat> I'm sort of of the opinion that it's much easier to trust a server that hosts some content than it is to put my trust into uh, certificate authorities who, you know, let's face it, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I can trust them. Whereas, you know, if I've connected to jemmy.dev and their content appears to be their content, then, you know, that's as far as the trust need go. There's no sensitive information being transmitted. I shouldn't need to have a certificate authority sat in between us that I have to independently vet and, you know, trust. Well, as I said, I'm an old, old internet hand, and I was running into, I'm, I have a number of computers, and I, would, I was looking for a protocol to transfer files between them. Mm -hmm. And I'd rather the things be, have some level of security, which is to say, I don't want everything plain text like uh, like old-fashioned pure FTP. Mm -hmm. my, my solution is uh, that I use is uh, SSH keys and with uh, S secure copy or more securely SFTP. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for transferring, for transferring files, uh, Gemini is not the, is not the solution, but um things like and i you know i highly recommend if people are interested in gemini and something a little bit more uh advanced that gemini can do beyond just um you know posting text articles which is obviously the primary use case um i do highly recommend people to check out something called station which is station.martinru.com on gemini um it's a like I say, it's a microblogging site. It is a, a sort of a Twitter-like thing, which allows you to post, um, you know, updates, post comments, like things, and it uses TLS certificates to do all of this to authenticate you. So when you first sign up, you put in a username and you provide a TLS certificate to authenticate yourself. What you can then do is you can set up an additional account password, and then when you go to another computer and generate a new certificate, you can uh, basically pass that certificate to the server and say, I would like to associate this with my account. You put in your username and your password, and then it associates that certificate to your account. So it's using quite a, it's actually quite a sort of um, interesting example of how TLS can be used, uh, TLS certificates can be used on Gemini to authenticate users across different devices and to, um, you know, you know, and, and obviously using TLS to encrypt the data between the client and the server. Um, but, well, it reminds me of the old uh, PGP. A little bit, yeah. Um, it's, it's slightly less cumbersome because, again, the client is in control. And if you have a modern-day client, like a really, a really good example of a client, if anybody's interested in trying Gemini and just wants something that will take care of all this stuff for them, the best one I know of is one called Lagrange, uh, because Lagrange has like a one-click system for creating certificates for you, um, and basically it just backs onto OpenSSL on the on the on the client. But you know, um, you basically just say create me a new certificate. It does all of that bit for you. So it's alleviating a lot of the barriers that you know PGP had. Um, although I was talking to George, and apparently there's a really nice system for using PGP now uh, called Mailvelope. So if you're a user of like Webmail, 
um, you know, that's also been reduced somewhat as a as a barrier. Yeah, no, no. As I've specifically mentioned you because I don't know much about it. <laughs> um, well, I, I I learned about it at Moz, and uh, it's a nice little setup. I ended up installing it. It works with pretty much all of my Gmail. Works with all the webmail. I store them locally as well, but I mean they're on there, and I've sent you stuff sometimes. Yeah, yeah. We 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 tested it out, and it works perfectly. I think when it comes to that kind of encryption, the biggest barrier has always been the complexity um for the average user so the more tools that we can get that just take down those walls um the better frankly um i'm, I'm the sort of person I, i'm still quite old school i still prefer to do things you know on a command line i still prefer to do things using you know just the gpg tools built in stuff like that but you know if i if i wanted my dad to use encryption on email I just send him a link to Mailvelope. <laughs> just get him to do that. <laughs> so, yeah. well, what what I what I ran into again, I haven't imp- had a chance to implement any of it. Is if I take my old uh, FTP server and then plug in a SSL certificate, mm-hmm. then it has this Gemini sort of security. Mm-hmm between it becomes from FTP it becomes FTPS which makes it like HTTPS Mm -hmm. and because I'm not planning on doing it industrially as long as I can create that certificate and plug it into my server it will provide just enough security for for the for for um, for my particular file transfers in-house yeah, I mean, SSH is, I think, reasonably secure for most operations, period, frankly. I mean, um, there's, a, there's a reason that, you know, we, we still use it for, for things like logging into servers securely, logging into things like, you know, pushing commits to GitHub and that sort of thing. I, I think it's a, it's a pretty good, let's, let's face it, anything that isn't username and password it's, it's pretty good in my books, um, but what 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 I'm saying is again I haven't implemented this. This is not SFTP. This is FTPS, which is FTP over SSL. Yeah. And if I don't have to keep handing out certificates, I mean, if I don't have to to keep handing out, uh, I realize that SSH keys are are great for passwordless login. But I'm saying if I can just put a certificate in and then have the FTP server handle and client handle handle securing the transfer, mm-hmm. that's just enough security. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I'm I'm looking at that, and I looked at uh, I I looked at all of the I looked at uh, Samba, I looked at uh, uh, SSH FS. Etc. Mm. And I said, for my particular use, with it, you know, just around around the house, I'd like to. I like FTP, but I don't like the plain text version of it. But mm. if if I have SSL in the way, it's just like jumping from HTTP to HTTPS. Yeah. Without have and and again, I'm using user certificates. Heck, this I've got to use. Uh, Mumble that we're using right now has a user certificate 
user-made certificate in it. Mm -hmm. After wandering all over the file transfer universe, I ended up right back at FTP plus SSL. I, I think just using the SFTP, which is just FTP inside the SSH wrapper, it, I think it's more secure and e easier to use. That's just my personal opinion, but I use it all day, every day at work. Um, and most of the uh, secure file transfers we do, uh, the vendors we work with, especially banks, uh, will, will support F FTP with TLS, but they prefer SFTP with uh, uh, keyless uh, key authentication without passwords. Yep. And you don't have to do it from the command line. Use a graphical tool like uh, FileZilla um, and uh, add the add the the key in there uh, for your connections, so you can always connect with a graphical tool or command line. You can now an interesting. I don't know if this is current because it was dated six months ago. Uh, FTP. Uh, SSHFS, the maintainer has stepped away, so I I understand that it was, at least for a time, an orphan. I don't know if that's current information, but that's what I was in one of my latest uh, forays on, on YouTube. That they were saying that the original maintainer had stepped up. Mm, yeah, it looks like it's uh, <clears throat> looks like it's been archived. You've got me. <laughs> It's interesting. It is. Um, I use it every day. Like, like I say, I, I do use Gemini because uh, I have this incredibly slow ThinkPad, which can really only deal with text-based applications. And browsing the web using links uh, is a nightmare because most websites are terrible. Um, so, using you know Gemini, which is specifically set up to be handled by any kind of client, whether graphical or text-based, is vastly superior um a vastly superior way of running the web and the the screenshot i just sent to you that's a there's a person called um and they call themselves jemmy.dev i don't actually know what their name is obviously it's pseudonymous but um they've created a bunch of really cool um really cool tools for gemini so they've got a, a search engine called kennedy a weather service called chilly weather uh, a front end for wikipedia on gemini um, news waffle, which is the app I sent you, which, which basically allows you to read news from any source you want to. You can just put a source in and say, fine, you know, if I wanted to get news from the register, I could add it as a, I could say, enter your favorite news. I put in HTTPS, the register.com and it would do its, it would do its level best to go away and make that into a readable format for Gemini. So there's a bunch of really cool stuff being done on Gemini. Um, and it's great for people who are using um, slower machines, or just like I say, who want to be able to read something like BBC News without having to encounter the absolute trash design that BBC News has, um, especially with regards to things such as accessibility. I'm not saying BBC News is the worst, but it doesn't do its due diligence to make sure it actually reads well. The, the front screen of BBC News is a nightmare. Um, you know, I, I used uh, in the, I'm going to say in the early 2000s when computer came, um, I used to sneak back to my server or at home or use kind of their resource. I had and I would browse. They didn't really catch. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
We'll all end up going the way of Richard Stallman and having a server download the raw HTML for us and then forwarding it to an email address that we then just read the HTML in Emacs. That's how it's all going to go eventually, as the web will become so unbearable. Emacs. <laughs> hey, I'm mostly using NeoVim at the moment, but yeah, Emacs is also great. You know, I'm just saying that, that that's a famous thing is that is that Richard Stallman doesn't browse the web using a web browser. <laughs> he just sends a sends the link to a thing. I think he sends it. Somebody will send him a link via email. His server will con- like rip the HTML out, and he will then just read the HTML code. Because he's a very sad man with a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, we, we won't go there. <laughs> yeah. I'm drinking coffee, right? Mug, my tears. Of- yeah. Speaking of Emacs, actually, since I'm, since I'm back in the UK temporarily, I have access to my GNU Emacs manual, Emacs 26.1. This editor, like no. <laughs> the edit, it's built into the editor. Like, There's no reason to have the book necessarily. I bought it. Back at, um, there was a conference in Bristol in the United Kingdom called um, Freenode Live, and the FSF were there. And this was back when I was like an FSF associate, like a, a, a sort of associate member. Um, and I purchased the book for a stupid amount of money just to support them. Uh, and this was just before the whole thing with Stormont went down. But yeah, 558 pages to explain how the text editor works. Yeah. No, uh, <laughs> so, uh, so one of the odd camps you missed. Oh, shut up. <laughs> was that? But one of the it's all of them. I've never been to one. All of them. Yeah, all of them. Yeah. But um, I, I've only was there with Keith and Luke, and mm. um, I'll throw him on. Uh, O'Reilly's was there. This is like, mm. so I bought a. I bought this just because it was there and this light reading this Linux shell handbook. And he mm-hmm. goes, I don't know why the heck you're buying that. You could just pull up the man command. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Well, I will say there's something nice about having a book, and there's something. In, in my opinion, fairly unpleasant about reading man pages. I don't know what it is particularly about man pages. I don't like the way GROF edit, uh, like, formats things. I think it's oh, no. ugly and difficult to work out. And also, I do feel that most people who write software are very bad at writing man pages or documentation in general. But that's because I'm a technical writer and I need to convince people that my job is worthwhile. We, we, won't, we won't get into because this is broadcast, but yeah, we won't get into it. You <laughs> Always oh, validating your job also oh, needs to try to use the software without your documentation. Yeah, yeah, um, it's it's pretty. It, it, when you find a, a piece of software that someone's documented really well, it's an absolute joy. Honestly, like there's nothing better than like being able to run a sort of you know help command or a, or a, a man command and actually getting the information you want directly at your fingertips. That's that's really useful. I think the biggest thing for me that I'm lacking with command line tools is I want to see more specific examples of uses. It's fine. It's all fine and good telling me like, you know, uh, what do all of the flags do? But actually, most of the time I have a specific use case, which I think is very common. And I'm just like, I just want you to show me, you know, what would I type in to get that result? And then you can explain after that, what do all of the flags do? Um you know, OpenSSL actually is a really good, a really good example of this. If I just want to generate a very basic sort of, um, you know, key pair uh, for a for a sort of a web server, I just want there to be an example of that. And every website you go to that you know does instructions just gives you the example first and then tells you. And I'm like, the man page could do that. You know, there's nothing to say that you couldn't do that in the man page, but 
you know, that's just me. And it's me being a, you know, fairly newbie person, I suppose. You are. It's true. I don't know why you trust me with our infrastructure. I, I, I've been doing that for many years now. Unfortunately, I don't know what's the market. Our entire infrastructure. It's true. But uh, I must uh, object. The Emacs manual does not tell you how Emacs works. It tells you how to use it. <laughs> Sorry, That's true, because there is no set way that Emacs works. Actually, I have a book, and if I take a few minutes, I may be able to dig it out of my vast stack of books here, about how to build an Emacs. It is also now to generate it to something you can get in PDF online, but I paid cash money for it. It goes through all of the things from keyboards, from uh, different memory models, excruciating detail. <laughs> now, it does not tell you how to write an Emacs in Lisp, but it tells you why you would use Lisp to do it. Because you really like parentheses. Well, as a introductory project, I was tasked in college with writing Tico in Pascal, and our instructor knew what she was doing, which was deadly. <laughs> yeah. It was deadly because the instructor would hand out, this is today's project, is this little puzzle piece, and we're trying to learn the language and programming structure and deal with her, her cryptic descriptions of what we were trying to do. And we were trying to do it on a Cray computer, which is to say we did not have any of the nice features of, of your average PC Borland Pascal. Mm. We were lucky if we had a line editor. I think a lot of stuff was, was if you need to correct it, uh, delete and write over. But the successful people on that project uh, use more more of a Xerox method than than an IBM, right? Because when when the teacher is two semesters ahead of you, if you're going to pass this final project, you find somebody whose project works, and then you you go in and edit variable name. <laughs> yes. As they say, good artists imitate great artists steal. Seemingly busy watching videos. I'm busy celebrating Hogmanay with the families. Um, I think so. I think, yeah, no, nobody's. <laughs> no, I, I remember there, there was that meme of uh, two programmers talking to each other. One of them says, bro, I stole your code. And the other one says, bro, it wasn't my code. Oh, yeah. And it's, <laughs> yeah. It's basically like... My very limited experience as a professional programmer, which literally lasted a few months, I hated working as a programmer. Um, I mostly just stole code off of other people. And then when I asked them to explain it, they would be like, I don't know, I stole it from someone else. It's like, it's so true. I don't know if anyone's written a line of code since sort of the early 90s. I think that's when we stopped as a species producing new code. Make some yeah, I've got to make some coffee. Before you go, I have a Usenet group for those of you who are suffering from being system maintainers. I think those I'm the only group. Usenet user in, in uh, Tech and Coffee, aren't I, George? Well, 
it's not really Usenet, but I mean, it is, it is Usenet, but but I'm getting it off of Google Groups, so right. I'm, I may be considered uh, not necessarily kosher. Uh, Alt Sysadmin Recovery. Okay. It is a, a, a sysadmin in recovery getting over the trauma of system administration. <laughs> it's a moderated group. If you wow. remember... If you remember a classic uh, sysadmin posting the sys operator from hell, you know the guy who, who would say, "We'll solve your, we'll solve all of your problems with that file. Just type rf <laughs> slash, you know, rf slash star dot star." Yeah, it, yeah. I don't know if anybody reads uh, in the register um, a series, a comedy series called BOFH. Um, I highly, highly recommend if you are somebody who worked in um, systems like systems administration or tech support, it's a very cathartic comedy series um, about, um, I'm, I'm, you know, because this is a, a broadcast thing, I won't mention what it stands for, but um, it's it, something operator from hell. You can work out the rest. Um, but it's it's just a very cathartic one because it's always about this this operator and his pimply-faced youth assistant uh, who abuse their stupid staff who keep asking them for stupid things on computers. It's very funny. <laughs> George, I, I'll send you a good example of it. Right, I'm going to go and get some more coffee, but I shall be back. I think I'm going to do the same. Greetings to Japan and six more. Tokyo, Seoul, Kunyan, Dili. Yes, Happy New Year. It's rubbishy instant coffee, but it's coffee nonetheless. Well, I'm drinking water at the moment for, for as long as possible because I have a problem with dehydration. Mm. But, I, but I have Mountain Dew and Coca-Cola in reserve for later in the mission. <laughs> okay. I mean, what, what um, is it sort of morning for you at the moment? Uh, by daylight, it's 10 o'clock. Uh, because I've been up most of the night, you know, right. things get a little fuzzy. Yeah. Well, I mean, by defi definitions, get a little fuzzy. Yeah. I, my last job, I was doing security in a little gatehouse, midnight to eight officially. Although, as the company was losing the contract or throwing it away, actually, uh, we started having those 64-hour weeks where who cares what time it is, I'm back to work. Mm. Also, I was taking a lot of Coke and caffeine. Uh, now, the, the black-colored Coke, not the white-colored Coke. We weren't making <laughs> enough money to buy the white-colored <laughs> stuff. Yep. <laughs> but when you're looking at the same stretch of empty, dark road, uh, let's see. Was the last time I looked at that 15 minutes ago or two hours? It really doesn't make that much difference. The reason I say our company was throwing it away was that we were paid a magnificent 7 or 750 an hour. And the company who bought my former employer, we were the highest paid of their, of the crop. And they went to the condos we were providing security for and the condo guys would say, could you do X, Y, or Z? And they would say, sorry, no, thank you. We'll see you next month. And after a while, 
the condo association decided that they could have somebody else tell them. But then again, our condo gate was a stop sign and a speed bump. So it's not exactly <laughs> worse yet. Um, when I was there, my final stretch, we were only doing patrols on weekends. We had one young lady whose wife, whose, whose mother was a, she was a single mother and her daughter was, shall we say, popular. Mm -hmm. And she had a double layer condo. It had the front door on one level and emergency exits to the bedroom level upstairs. Now, for one thing, most of the week we were supposed to secure the, her, her virtue at about 100 yards without a rifle. And uh, also this condo had it on one side of the double driveway was an area that was not under our security protection. So people could just say that we're visiting over there and we, we couldn't stop them. This place wasn't well fenced. Well, when this young lady's 18th birthday came around, the security team celebrated it almost as much as she mm -hmm. because you could go to the front door and the par parties of interest could be could be leaving out over your head at the floor you couldn't see. We were good, but seeing through through cement floors was was beyond our competence. Mm -hmm. Although it was the kind of place where a lot of things were more features than than uh, effective. You had a fence around the pool. Good. It was two foot high, which meant that it could stop anyone trying to rescue somebody, but probably wouldn't stop anybody trying to get in. Mm -hmm. I did have an interesting conversation with someone in a state police uniform and a car marked state police. Mm -hmm. The gentleman said that, may I check on my girlfriend? And I did a bit of who's on first. And sure, tell me who it is, and I'll give them a call, and you can go up and have coffee with them. <laughs> or you can tell me what official police business you have with that person, and and I'll lock up my little gatehouse, and, and I'll escort you up there, and everybody will be, have fun. What I can't do is let a random police person drive around our parking lot looking for interesting license numbers or whatever. That's what I'm not supposed to do. So you can you can take one from column A or one from column B, but column C is locked up. <coughs> right. Well, especially since it was rumored that that some people on our condo might be selling uh, pharmaceuticals not exactly FDA approved, mm -hmm. and it was also known that uh, one of our people. Um, Tended to help people with their in um, well, let, let's say this person was in competition with the state lottery, among others. Mm -hmm. In fact, one day we had an, a jogger come in inquiring about some something random. While this gentleman had had a guest and a trail car enter the property, mm -hmm. the, the jogger was keeping my attention while while this was happening, so uh, it's pure speculation that that the visitors were, were of interest to the government. And the jogger was a decoy. Mm. I didn't know that, but, it, but it, it was a... We didn't have many joggers come into the property. Mm. Yeah. 
So it set off an alarm bell. As poor Richard said, you know, uh, you may suspect the, the milk. You, you, you can question whether or not the milk's been watered, especially if you find a trout in it. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. Today's show was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, you click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hosting for HBR has been kindly provided by anhonesthost.com, the Internet Archive and rsync.net. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License.